listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single-origin coffees, and they're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I have to start my day off with at least one or two cups. I make it by hand. I usually use a pour-over. Sometimes I'll break out the Chemex on the weekend, but honestly, it doesn't matter. You could be using a Mr. Coffee. You could be using... Any cheap automatic machine, you might even have something a little fancier. But that doesn't matter. What does matter, first and foremost, is the beans. You have to start out with really high-quality beans, and that's going to pretty much guarantee, no matter how you make your coffee, that you're going to turn out with a really good cup of coffee or espresso, depending on what you like. Now, just say no to the burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee that you find in your grocery store. And I don't even bother with that store brand stuff. So here's what you do. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to kovacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A coffee.com, and use my code JDP10, as in Jelly Donut Podcast 10, 10, and you get $10 off your first purchase. JDP10, and you get $10 off your first purchase at Kova Coffee. Do it right now while you're thinking about it. As soon as you know it, they roast it fresh. And it'll be right on your doorstep for you to enjoy in the morning or whenever you enjoy your coffee. So if you like the show, support Kova Coffee since they support us and you'll be happy you did. Today in the show, we have Julian Brigden. Julian is the co-founder and president of Macro Intelligence 2 Partners. He brings 25 years of experience in financial markets, including five years at Medley Global Advisors, a leading macro policy intelligence firm and has served as North American Head of Hedge Fund Sales at Credit Agricole. He's worked in London, Zurich, New York, and Vail at UBS, Lehman Brothers, HSBC, Drexel, Credit Suisse, and Solomon Brothers, and FX and Precious Metals. He's been featured on many financial outlets, including Bloomberg, CNBC, Wall Street Journal, Barron's, and more, for the firm's research on EM, liquidity, QE, bubbles, and global FX. Enjoy my conversation with Julian Brigden. Julian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Ryan. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Well, it's great to have you here. So the first topic I like to start off with is going back to 2008. We had many crises up until that point, Asian crisis slash LTCM, SNL, but nothing was quite like 2008. So take us back to what you were doing during the time and what was going through your mind and maybe if it changed the way you feel about the financial system. So at the time, I was sitting uh, in New York uh, on a trading desk, uh, actually on a sales desk of Credit Agricole. 
And I was, I think, the only person there who, you know, New York afternoons are kind of quiet, right? Most of the activity gets done in the morning when you overlap with Europe, and then the afternoons generally get a little quiet. And um, I think I was probably the only FX person who was listening to the conference calls of the US home builders and going through these and looking at them and thinking, they think they're going to sell 3 million homes or 4 million homes, which is what they were telling you, um, and saying, this just isn't going to happen. I mean, historically, you can go back to the 60s and sort of US home sales are basically a big sine wave. Typically, they based at a million and they topped out just over 2 million. Um, and thinking, you know, there's something not right here. And, you know, I, I'd come out of uh, Medley Global Advisors, which had been a policy uh, think tank. And we were incredibly well connected. I had a bunch of buddies who were incredibly well connected. My wife actually uh, was incredibly well connected. She was sitting almost at the epicenter of the problems working for AMBAC as a portfolio manager there. And, and I was getting all these contradictory views. And I started to write to my clients that this thing was going to go south. It was going to go south very quickly. I remember getting one of my old Medley colleagues uh, on a conference call with two of the biggest uh, PMs uh, in London and him giving them a download on the housing market. That's his specialty, a guy called Josh Rosner. And both of them being stunned silence for like an hour and a half. And then the phone going dead and one of the guys calling me back and saying, boy, it can't be that bad, can it? <laughs> <laughs> I said, Josh really knows his stuff. Yes, it's that bad. Um, and so that's, you know, we could just, you could see it was coming. Um, the big trade that I had, I was sitting on the FX side was long dollars because it was pretty clear to me that what was going to happen is that supply of dollars was going to constrict. And I mean, to the, to the point is, did it, has it changed the way we thought about it? Yeah. I mean, obviously it's changed the way we thought about the system. I mean, I think essentially in 2008, laissez-faire free market economics peaked mm -hmm. and it's been withering since then and we're moving into a period where the role of government is just going to become ever increasing there's going to be no such thing as free markets i mean even if you would argue that they exist at this present moment in time but those are just going to become more and more and more constrained and more and more controlled in the pursuit of the greater good call it what you will um but you know i think the way that i've approached markets in the last few years um is very much to try and model the macro um in pursuit of trying to assess when it would result in a policy response. And it's the policy response that drives the market, not the macro, but you have to get the macro right to know when the policy response is going to happen. Right. And let's go to present day. So when you look at the leverage built up in the system, obviously it was in the mortgage market back in 2008. And now we have arguably corporate credit. And then we have another topic altogether, sovereign mm -hmm. debt. So how are you looking at the market now as far as are we in better or worse shape? How are you looking at it? Well, look at it. You know, I'm not saying we're quite on the deck of the Titanic, but you are sort of shifting the chairs around on the deck of the Titanic. So the, so the risks are not in the banking system and not in the traditional banking system as we understand it. The, the, the risks are in the sort of shadow banking system, the virtual banking system, call it what you will, 
all of these sort of new third-party lending institutions, and they're offlaying their risk elsewhere in the system. So, in fact, you know, a lot of the risk is in the mutual funds. A lot of the risk is in private equity. Um, so the risks haven't disappeared. In fact, arguably, I think it's fair to say they have grown. Um, but are they as acute in the sense that do they pose as great a risk to the system? And my answer would probably be no, because of the new tools that central banks and policymakers have. So I think 08 caught people really by surprise and policymakers were caught on the hop and had to essentially invent tools on the fly. Um, that's not the case anymore, right? That's not right. the case anymore. So, you know, you could have a situation where you get, you know, problems in another market where things seize up. But I think policymakers are in a better position to potentially address those than they were before. Don't get me wrong. I can see some very ugly things. And I think you're right to point out the excesses in the, in the corporate system, um, particularly here in the U.S., yeah, and you mentioned the policy response. So, you know, during 2008, we had that huge injection of liquidity. Uh, before before that, the the Fed's balance sheet grew to about 800 billion. They took it all the way up to four and a half trillion. How are you looking at the the QE or the balance sheet now? It was going to start rolling off. It was going to be like watching paint dry, and then we kind of had that that quick. <laughs> Sorry, I just, I just, I just, you know, that was the that was absolutely the classic comment that she came out with, and I couldn't disagree more. But anyway, yes, go go ahead. Sorry, right? Apologize. Yeah, yeah, and and we had this quick reversal. Obviously, we we can get to the re market a little bit later but you know this this newest injection is is on the the shorter end of the curve these 30-day bills that they're buying but how are you looking at it kind of on uh, from a 30,000 foot view and did you ever imagine that it would we'd still be at these levels kind of these this emergency levels this this far out 10 plus years later so i remember writing in 09 um a piece for my clients um, which I des- described the sort of what we were going through is it would end up looking like the twin blasts of a nuclear weapon. Mm-hmm. So you get an implosive wave and an explosive wave. And I said, you know, as we go into the crisis and, and housing starts to slow down and starts to weigh on the consumer, weighs on the banking sector, and that banking sector balance, private sector bank balance sheet in the US starts to contract, it would be highly implosive. It would suck everything back into the middle. The dollar would go bid. And that's what our big bet was uh, on the dollar. And um, then at some point, the central banks would step in and you would get uh, an explosive or reflationary wave. Now, I said the ultimate victim would be the the the, uh, the sanctity of the of the U.S. system, um, because you were moving away from that laissez-faire economics. But that explosive wave would be reflationary and expansive. And I do, you know, QE one I've always said was a little different from QE two, QE three, QE one, um, and to a certain extent, this current repo QE, call it what you will, um, I see as obviating negatives. Okay. By that, I mean QE1, if you think of the liquidity in the US system 
as a bucket, right? Then we had, you know, pre- heading into the GFC, we had, you know, central bank money, power money created by the banks, derivatives, et cetera, et cetera. And the GFC comes along, it blows a hole in the side of the bucket. The liquidity just dissipates immediately. The Fed comes up, they patch up the bucket, and QE1 filled the back bucket back up to the top. To mm-hmm. stabilize the system, triage if you want. Um, QE2 and QE3 were net additions, though, to liquidity. Um, they really allowed that liquidity to spew over into the system. So I remember sitting at my desk and looking at the effect of QE1 and QE2 in terms of the SP when Janet Yellen came out and talked about QE infinity. Mm-hmm. And I remember figuring out how many points, and it was amazingly linear, right? I mean, amazingly linear, how many points every 50 billion of QE added to the S&P. Yeah. And I straight lined out what Janet Yellen said she was going to do over the next year and a bit. And I was 25 points off from the ultimate peaking out of the S&P at the end of QE3. So I... Truly believe, and if you go back and look at history, whether you look at, the, say, the Weimar Republic or Zimbabwe, right, that if you devalue the value of the denominator of assets, in this case, dollars, then you can reflate those assets, certainly financial assets, right? There is essentially that no gravity that applies to the financial asset market. Um, that is in the real economy and things like housing, and this is part of the problem that we've got at the moment, is that we've inflated everything again. And in the real economy, gravity does apply in the the form of affordability. So you can push up a stock price forever, right? Forever, if you Mm -hmm. print enough cash. You can't necessarily push up a house price unless you get that liquidity into the real economy, which is obviously part of the problem that we've uh, that we've had. Um, and, you know, then it comes to this issue of, of QT. Um, we wrote a year and a half ago, you know, when this is all mulled in sort of the, the late 2017, we said, can the Fed successfully shrink the balance sheet? And our answer was no. Mm-hmm. No. Essentially, the way I like to do it is, you know, the line I use is the Fed has created a crack addict to whom they've become utterly beholden. I mean, we live in a world now where whether it's CEOs who don't have a product, a tangible product, their only product is their stock price, okay? Or whether it's consumers who look at their house prices as some sort of ATM or a metric of their wealth or stock portfolio, that you can't ever allow asset prices to even stabilize, you have wow. to continuously keep inflating their values. Otherwise, and this is partly what we've seen over the last year, you start to elicit a negative feedback loop. So if CEO stock prices, let's remember the broad NYSE, not just the S&P or the NASDAQ, you know, led by half a dozen stocks, but the broad NYSE has gone nowhere for two years, right? This is why CapEx growth has dissipated to zero. This is why you're starting to see signs of weakness in the US labor market. Um, you know, the fact that house prices have stopped rising so aggressively is one of the reasons why you're starting to see some of the elements of the consumer come slightly off the boil. Right? All of these things create this feedback loop. So the 
distasteful option for the central bankers. And it is distasteful because, you know, they understand the risks of doing this. Um, there is only one option, and that's to keep these bubbles going and going and going and going and going until you can't. Right. And so looking at the balance sheet, there's a, a multifaceted kind of way you can look at this. So one that comes to mind is just foreign buyers of treasuries drying up and the Fed coming in and, and, and taking up that slack. The other is when you look at, well, let's just take that one first. Yep. So look, I think we wrote a piece. I had a long conversation with a buddy of mine. Um, couple of years ago about who was sitting at the time he was running global fixed income for one of the big three money managers no sorry um big three um, money center banks and he had been going into the fed and saying to them please 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 think again before you impose all these various new regulations that have occurred post the gfc and mm -hmm. he said because it's going to kill liquidity in the treasury market and we're one of the largest market makers and we aren't going to be stepping up to the plate and what he explained to me was that you know in the good old days if you were a primary dealer you could hold almost an infinite portfolio of treasuries because you could net your positions down to zero uh, there was no equity required to be held against positions. Um, the capital required was incredibly low because they were considered risk-free assets. And then post the crisis, there were all these regulations that just negated a lot of those benefits. And so it suddenly had to put up equity against the position. You know, he had a return on equity bogey. Um, that meant that he just didn't want to hold that big of a book. He couldn't net the thing down to anything more than 40%. And he just said, that just the liquidity isn't going to be there. Right. The liquidity isn't going to be there. So then fast forward to the start of this year and we've seen a couple of problems. Firstly, the dollar has been incredibly robust, which means that foreign central bank aren't intervening to you know, do their standard thing when the dollar's weak. They buy, they buy dollars to stop their currencies getting too strong because they're all mercantilists. Right? And then they take those dollars and they reinvest them in the treasury market. But when the dollar's strong, they're not buying as many dollars because if anything, they're trying to prevent their currencies becoming too weak. Um, but the point is that, that let's call them reserve managers, foreign central banks were not such active players in the treasury market. Uh, Second thing is that we inverted the curve. And when you inverted the curve or you, you know, push it as negative as we did, um, then the, what I'd refer to as the sort of cash and carry buyers um, can't do their job. Right? There's no curve, curve to surf right? when the curve is inverted. So if you remove those two key buyers, um, what you get is you find out that a lot of the auctions, particularly in the environment where we're issuing you know, shed load of debt, a lot of the auction uh, ends up going to the primary dealers because they are, you know, duty bound to step up to the plate. Now, I tweeted this, I showed the the, the, the other day, I showed the chart of uh, primary dealer holdings and, um, you know, it just massively increased and you can put it against the, the curve and you can see it's a very solid uh, correlation. And um, the problem was, is that given these new regulations, given that the primary dealers were having to step up to the plate, it was sucking capital and equity internally into the primary dealer units of these money center banks. And left unchecked, 
that was going to restrict credit availability to other bits of the bank, the prime brokers, you know, even potentially the lending side, because the primary dealer has no choice. He has to take the auction down. Mm-hmm. Right, and then the Fed will basically have to jump in and and buy it from the primary dealers. So that's Is that where you're going with this. Yes, so that's essentially what happened, Ryan. So faced with the risk, in a way, a sort of a potential. I mean, much slower moving and far less critical, but in a way, the same thing. Faced with the, that we had under under um, as as we ended up with the GFC, okay, where private sector bank balance sheets collapsed. If the primary dealers had been forced to take down this ever-increasing large amount with no help from other players, that would have just tightened credit. So the Fed, unless they wanted to see that, had to step in, which is why when I do, when I look at this new QE, I do think it's more akin to QE1. In other words, it's designed to offset a negative rather than necessarily like QE2 and QE3. But you know, we wrote to our clients as soon as this thing started. Doesn't really matter, right? I mean, even offsetting a negative in itself is a you could view as a slight positive, and hence, you know, the equity market is going to love all this stuff, particularly in the environment where we've got an administration that seems only interested in, you know, fluffing up the equity market even further. Yeah, and going to the balance sheet, as you mentioned, your view is they may not be able to to shrink it. Uh, how do you? respond to someone that says this is just an asset swap and this isn't really debt monetization but if they don't actually roll off the balance sheet then it seems like that's exactly what it is so how do you reconcile that piece yeah i mean look of course it's you know in in its purest terms not debt monetization right until the day that you get the jet you know that the fed turns around and says we're cancelling our, you know, a bit like the Bank of England did. At some point, they cancel making interest payments uh, to the uh, government because they said, you know, it's just the same, same thing, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, until the point that the Fed turns around and says, we got all these treasuries on our book, we owe them to Treasury, but we're both, you know, two sides of the same balance sheet, so we're just going to cross them out. It mm-hmm. isn't. It isn't technically. I don't see, you know, true debt monetization. Technically, Treasury owes money to the Fed, right? Um, but, it, you know, there is no question that this is liquidity that's added into the system to inflate assets, right? There's there's never – there's a fantastic interview, which Richard Fisher, the Dallas Fed president, who I think in that classic straight-shooting Texan way, gave on CNBC when, like a month after he'd retired, and he came out and he said – of course, it was about the equity market. It was always about the equity market, despite the fact that everyone else at the time was telling you, no, 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 it's not about the equity market. It's about balancing liquidity at the front end of the system. Mm-hmm. And the guy said, no, of course, it was about the equity market. And the, you know, it was done in CNBC Europe, and the bloke nearly fell off his chair right, with the guy <laughs> when he said this. But it's, it's, that's what it was about. It was about creating that wealth effect. Okay, well, they've done it tremendously successfully. The problem is, is is to your question, can they shrink it? And the answer is no, they can't because we live in a system, and this is the point that we made to our clients you know, 18 months ago, two years ago, because you live in a system where asset prices dictate behavior through the behavior of CEOs when they see their stock prices going, they start to cut costs. 
to the behavior of consumers, you know, when they see their house prices start to wobble, they start to cut spending. No, of course you can't bloody step it back. You're stuck, right? Now you can change the nature of it going forward, right? You can turn it into social QE or, or you know, real fit or MMT type QE that's aimed at supporting fiscal spending as opposed to just flushing assets, right. flushing assets into the financial system. Right. But there ain't no way that we can pull this balance sheet away. I mean, that was just farcical to even believe that, that Janet, you know, you can look at chart after chart after chart. You know, we've got a chart, for example, that we show that we look at the shadow Fed funds rate from the Atlanta Fed. They created this model um, and it showed they tried to model the effect of QE. And what it showed is once we hit the zero bound, their model keeps going lower, showing effectively that, you know, effective Fed funds are going lower and they show it hit minus 300 basis points. OK, then the Fed starts to hike. The rate of QE drops off and, and the shadow Fed funds rate comes up and it touches the Fed funds rate in 2016 when I think that was like 50 basis points. OK, so the Atlanta Fed stopped producing it at that point. Well, it gave you the equation. So we just plugged in the same variables. And I'm not saying it's completely right, but if you believe that QE dropped Fed funds to minus 300 basis points, then during the period of QE of QT at the highs, then that same model went up to 450 basis points positive. So a net switch of 750 basis points. I mean, amazing stuff. Wow. Amazing yeah. stuff. If you look at the performance of the dollar during the period of QT, given every other metric which typically would have driven it lower, cross-currency basis swaps, long-term supply metrics, the cycle itself, it all tells you that QT had a massive effect. Right. And and going back to what you said about the, the major policy shift, I think that makes a lot of sense. And the central theme on the podcast is is looking at inflation and deflation in this paradigm shift that may or may not happen and when you, you mentioned mmt and you mentioned uh, kind of the fiscal side how are you looking at and this conversation ties into rates and the, do the dollar as you just mentioned so how are you looking at you know rates as far as in you know inflation actually coming into the market maybe it's fiscal on the fiscal side and how how do you see different scenarios of that playing out as far as maybe the long end of the curve, you know, getting away um, from the Fed or maybe, maybe, you know, even normalizing, let's say the 10 year US 10 year gets up to, you know, four five, six percent or something like that. How are you looking at that dynamic? So the, so the first thing I would say, Ryan, is the following. Um, there is a fantastic chart, which you can get on the Bank of England's kind of blog, which is called Bank Underground. And um, only a, only a, someone like the Bank of England would ever do that. I mean, they just put something out where they look at uh, Frederick Handel's um, bank accounts and how he speculated in the South Sea bubble. I mean, it's, it's a, their ability to just dig back into the past blows me away. But they produced a 400-year chart of the yield on the risk-free asset that was prevalent at the time. So you know, at the moment, it'd be 10-year treasuries. And what they show is we've been in disinflation, if for want of a better term, for 400 years. Wow. Right? 
for 400 years, just straight down. However, you get intermittent bouts of inflation. So to everyone will say, look, technology, demographics, blah, 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 blah. That's where I was, what I was going to say. <laughs> you know, yes. But, you know, we've had this inflation because we used to have enclosed fields, right, with one bloke plowing it. And then we got, you know, land purchases and we started to aggregate the land together. And you had the agricultural revolution, you know, in the 1600s in the UK. And then all of a sudden, you know, it made things more efficient. So we've always had that. Right. We've always lived in a disinflationary falling rate environment. The big bloody difference is we never quite got to zero on nominal yields. Okay, and that's what's caused all these central banks to freak out. But when I look at where we are now, in many respects, I think the most analogous period is kind of the early 60s. Sorry, mid 60s, let's say into late 60s. So in the early 60s, you had an incredibly stable uh, inflation environment, an incredibly stable inflation environment. If you look at it, you know, CPI was like one and a half percent flatline, didn't go anywhere for five years. The equity market loved it. It's up, you know, 70, 80 percent. The bond market loved it. You know, term risk premiums collapsed to zero because you don't need any term risk hedge you know, essentially or comfort uh, because there is no inflation. So you don't have to worry about things. And then you get um, Kennedy's assassination. Johnson comes in. He pushes through a big spending package, um, which is unnecessary. It comes at the wrong point of the cycle. And this is one of the things that we played into uh, 2016. It's one of the reasons why we got very bearish on the bond market in the um, summer, uh, literally uh, like a week uh, to the lows in the US bond market, because we said, you know, you don't need to stimulate in this type of environment. But the thing is, is you create a cycle, right, where you kind of get into this policy error begets policy error. And because, you know, you respond to things. So you there is we shouldn't have had the inflation that we had outside the fiscal spending. I mean, if you look at the dollar, mm -hmm. dollar and US CPI typically are very heavily inverted co correlated. And so the fact that the dollar has been so robust for the last few years meant you shouldn't have had any CPI. In fact, we should have had, you know, sort of European style CPI rates. Well, the reason we did is because we had bloody great big fiscal spending. OK, so then you pump up these asset prices you pump up the inflation, the Fed responds, and then they panic when things start to go bad. And they did essentially the same thing in 1967 after the equity market dropped 20%. So now, as we look forward, okay, inflation's coming back down, but we're re-stimulating again, right? We're re-stimulating at 3.5% unemployment. Mm-hmm. Right, three and a half percent unemployment. The last time we did this was indeed 1967, 1968, and that bumped up. You catch the cycle before it has time to flush, right? And you keep ingraining these inflationary metrics in. And God forbid, look, it doesn't mean that we can't have another correction, we kind of things, but but I think the bond yields, and I've gone on the record for saying this, hit the lows in the summer of 2016. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's not going to be a straight line linear process, but I do believe that as we roll into, you know, if we punt things now, my work says, you know, 10 year yields should go back up to sort of two and a half percent. You know, we keep this game going. 
probably pump up the equity market even further because at least the initial response of the equity market in a rising yield environment provided the data is okay, which it looks like it's going to be on balance. Um, will be, oh, this is positive reflation. You know, you rotate into from growth into value, all that sort of stuff. And, but then you get into, you know, post the election, maybe we have then a big correction. 1969, after a 20% correction in 66, 67, we get a 30% correction. And let's say we in inequities, let's say we get that. Well, MMT is coming after that because the central mm-hmm. banks will be out of ammo or they won't want to use it. And MMT is now the invoke thing. And I think, frankly, it's the right thing, right? It's the right thing socially for us because we can't keep doing what we're doing because the consequences of growing this wealth inequality are frightening for everyone. Yeah, and so is that a scenario where you see rates rising somewhat slowly? I think the the opposite side of the coin, what some people talk about is, okay, if rates rise too fast, then that's going to cause a break in the equity market, maybe real estate, those type of risk assets. And then whether that's a crisis or some type of market dislocation, and then we see that that flood into treasuries as that safe haven trade. I know Raul Paul, and you have talked a lot about this on the Macro Insiders, you know, his view, I know it's, it's obviously always changing, but I know his view for a while is 10 year down to 50 bips in yep. that type of scenario. And, th- and this is, I think, a really interesting dynamic to talk about because maybe it's, it's, it's a smaller chance of that happening, but it's still, you know, it's still and, and a chance. Raul, Raul could be right. I'm not, you know, I think we have great respect for each other's views. We do differ a little bit on this bond view, as you well know. I think tactically we've been aligned at times, but I think structurally uh, we're a little different. I mean, I I think to get to the 50 bips, you have to assume that the Fed has failed. Okay, you have to assume that they are unable to create inflation, uh, and they fall into the same sort of trap as the BOJ and ECB. And I think. They have something that the ECB and the BOJ do not have, and that is ultimately the ability to throw the dollar under a bus. Mm-hmm. And as I said, if you can create dollar weakness, um, and I don't think they've done enough yet to do that, but if you can create dollar weakness, you can create inflation here in the United States pretty damn quickly. Um, and I think what I would say is, is that to the argument of, can you push up rates enough, you know, without kicking over the equity market? And that actually was the most toxic thing that happened in the late 60s. Okay. So between, this is where things get a little interesting. Between, so 65 to like 69, 70, nominal yield rise a lot. You go from four to eight. Okay. Um, but within that period, real yields fall over 200 basis points. They're like 300 at the highs, I think in 66, just before the equity market cracks. Um, And then they drop to like 100 and change. Um, Why? For the very reason that you set out there, Ryan, that that the equity market couldn't take higher real yields, okay? It could take the higher nominal yields because you had the nominal growth to support it. So that essentially there there was a cap on the bond market. The bond yields couldn't rise too much without knocking the equity market over. And so you ended up with this situation that essentially bond yields got capped out. Now, this time, 
I mean, just only got to look at the Fed's minutes from this this last week. This time, it may not be a market-induced cap. It could actually be a central bank cap, mm-hmm. right? I mean, they've talked about yield curve control this week. Uh, they seem to have, you know, dismissed the possibility of negative interest rates, thank God, because they don't damn well work. Um, but they seem to be concurring that maybe yield curve control is the right thing to do. So I can see if you, you know, push yourself forward to a 2021 post-US election, we get this equity correction potentially because we've just inflated things too much, right? Mm-hmm. And then you get your wave of MMT, your infrastructure spending, your writing off student loans, you know, whoever, depending on who's in power at the time, bond yields start to back up um, as inflation picks up again. But this time, the Fed just goes, there you go. It's 3%, boys, your name's the Fed. Mm -hmm. And bond investors get annihilated in that environment. I mean, I don't think people realize when you're starting from duration exposures like we have now, okay, with the level of rates that we have now, with the fact that the fact that the term risk premium is negative, which it hasn't been for 60 years, okay, and then you let bonds correct, the amount of money that gets, let alone you take the inflation into account, the amount of money that gets lost is mind-blowing. I mean, a treasury investor, this is another fact I picked up from the Bank of England in one of their reports, a treasury investor between 1965 and 1970 lost one third of their money in real terms in five years. We haven't even got to the oil shock of 72. Mm -hmm. This is just 65 to 70, the foothills of the inflationary era. Exactly. So when you look at that inflation playing out, it's this weird dynamic because the Fed and, and central banks all over the world have brought rates down and, like you said, tried to stimulate growth, create this wealth effect but at the same time, it seems like there's this race to the bottom and the end game here is going to be you know, devaluation of the currency and try to inflate away the debt. How do you see that dynamic playing out? And do you see this paradigm shift kind of happening there? Or I, look, are you I looking at that? When I look at the dollar, I've just come back from the trip from Europe and I've talked to clients about when I look at the dollar yeah. and its valuation across a whole slew of different kind of metrics, it looks very overvalued okay i think as i said earlier i think a lot of that is down to qt uh i think that is also you know phenomena that we've seen in the past what i would call kind of you know um double dipping um so if you go and look at uh the nikkei into the uh, 1989 bubble highs it occurred um the real trend in the nikkei occurred post plaza okay why? Because every single day, the central banks are coming in and selling dollars and buying yen and, yen and Deutschmarks, et cetera, et cetera. So what does that do? It gives you a very strong upward yen trend. So what do you do as a foreign investor, as a European or an American? You go and buy yen. Well, you're sitting on these yen. What the hell do you do with them? Well, then you go and buy into a story that was the Sony Walkman and you know all the technology that was spewing out of uh, Japan at the time. And so you, you double dip. You buy the currency and you buy the dominant, best returning, high beta domestic asset. Um, and um, you make out like a bandit. Well, essentially, people have done that here in the US 
right? People have bought treasuries for yield because it's the only place that you've had yield pretty much. And then they bought US growth stocks because US growth stocks are the only growth story on the planet, right? Even though we know that they don't really grow when anything really grows, you want to own value when there's real GDP growth. But that's what you bought. And so you push up this dollar, the dollar is very expensive at this sort of point. And the question is, is can we just get the trigger to roll it over? I think you can. I don't think maybe we haven't seen enough pain there. I think you could get the positive correction in the dollar where you do like you got in 2016, right? Where you do, let's say the central banks have done enough already. We have got enough reflation in the system. Um, We are going to see the dollar start to weaken as, you know, Europe starts to pick up, right? Their bond yields are even more mispriced than ours are. Um, the rate differential narrows, the euro starts to rally. Um, Brexit goes well, uh, not Brexit, um, the election in the UK goes well. Um, sterling starts to rise. Um, you know, we start to get some real signs of uh, real tangible growth and things like copper start to pick up and oil starts to pick up. Um, and um, everything is you know, everything is positive in that sense. Um, but you, so you get positive rotation out of kind of the expensive growth stock and into the value trade, which is emerging markets, commodity currencies, that sort of thing. Or the dollar, I think, is going to fall because you end up, you could end up with the secondary scenario that we roll into early next year. We actually find out the economy here in the US isn't nearly as robust as some of these PMIs that naturally are trend reverting, um, as we think. And then the Fed slashes rates, the rate differential disappears, and then the dollar falls relative to the euro because everyone goes, well, what the hell am I taking the risk in the US for? Because I'm not getting earning anything anymore. So I think you can get two sorts of dollar corrections. And then big picture, look, you know, the US is doing everything it possibly can to undermine the long-term strategic value of the dollar. A dollar decline, if you look at the cycles, which have been remarkably stable in both in terms of amplitude and length since 1972, since we had free floating currencies, everything tells you the dollar's, you know, overdue, right? It is heavily pregnant and it should decline. Um, We just haven't got there yet because I don't think we've got the impetus and there is still funding problems into year end. But um, I think once the dollar starts to decline, you're going to find out that you can create inflation. A heck, certainly in this country, a heck of a lot quicker. And look, the Europeans, to your point, you know, the Europeans and other countries will initially bitch. But if it's a positive reflation, um, where you start to see commodity prices start to pick up, because you, you do have growth at the same time, um, then even places like Europe and Japan ultimately will benefit because emerging markets will start to pick up those as huge export markets for those guys. Right. And that brings up a good point about the organic growth. So when you look around the world, there doesn't seem to be a lot of organic growth looking towards the future. You can look at India, you can look at maybe China, arguably, um, and here in the U.S., um, you know, there's not that many other other countries you could look at, um, you know, maybe UK, Canada. But as far as being able to get that organic growth here, let's say in, in the US, 
the Fed has been talking about that for for a long time, but it, it just doesn't seem to be happening. When maybe it's the going back to that argument about, about the technology and the the demographic shifts. But how are you looking at that piece when you look at demographics and kind of being able to get that organic growth going? At least okay, in the I, US, I think I think you make some very valid uh, observations. Organic growth is pretty hard to. Uh, to make right but it's all relative right we're not you know we're not dealing with the sort of 12 percent fed funds rate that we had under volca right we're dealing with you know two percent right mm-hmm. 175 so you know if you go back to four percent that's a hell of a change in terms of delta the same is true of organic growth i mean i do think that part of it's going to be addressed uh via fiscal spend I do think we're right. moving to, um, and and it and it's possible that we are in a somewhat, and it's always a relative thing, stagflationary kind of world, right? Um, mm-hmm. um, but I do think you can you can generate some organic growth. The other thing is that I think there's a bit of a misconception when it comes to demographics, because there, it's all about spending and saving. It's not really about demographics. It's really about spending and saving. And when you do them during your lifetime. Mm-hmm. So one of the problems that we've had recently is that um, the way that it works is you basically uh, consume, well, you're, you're dependent. So you're, you know, as a child and then you start to work and you and you spend, right? like crazy so you know all these 60 baby boomers were having a wild time in the 1960s and the 70s um i was way too young unfortunately to enjoy all the extremes that they had but all the sex drugs and rock and roll that we all hear about right then essentially they hit 30 and they start to have kids and they start to save and they save and they save and they save so in other words they are not spending okay and if you track bond yields for that you can see that's basically when bond yields peaked, right? Mm Because these people aren't spending anymore. They go into their 30s to start saving and they stick that money into treasuries. Now, we're about to hit the tipping point for them stopping saving. Because when you retire, essentially definitionally, you stop saving and you start dis-saving, Right. And you actually start to spend. Now, you spend yourselves on things on far less exciting things than you did in your 20s and your 30s, right? Adult depends and, you know, river cruises down the Rhine are not nearly as sexy as, you know, Woodstock, okay? (laughs) But the reality is you're not saving, okay? And when you become a spender again... And you dissave, those bond yields actually rise. Then you look at the millennials who increasingly start to move, you know, five, six years from now, they become the largest voting cohort and the generation before them also start to, you know, hit the peak of their earnings. It won't be as great as it has been in the late 60s, but it will provide that kicker. So when I look out, you know, I think we've got another potentially year two years of this choppy kind of are we going to see inflation have we seen the lows in bond yields all that sort of thing i maintain we have Mm -hmm. okay 
But out beyond that, as we move into like 2023, 2024, I don't think there's going to be any debate over whether we've seen the lows in inflation or any debate um, as to whether we can create inflation. And I think we might be surprised on a relative basis how quickly we can create inflation and how much damage that can do to debt, particularly treasuries, really, really quickly in exactly the way it did in this in the in five years in the 60s when inflation really only went and it may seem like a really but remember we're already at two and change we went from 1.6 to 5.8 in five years yeah and you mentioned uh paul volcker when he raised rates to fight inflation raised them to about roughly 15 percent debt to gdp was 35 40 percent in the u.s it, it's much much higher Correct. now it, let's talk about that dynamic, and and as you mentioned, maybe maybe the Fed having to do some, as they call it, yield curve targeting, and and somehow trying to keep rates, uh, you know, pinned even on the long end of the curve. Look, I, I mean, as I said, it's you've got this trend of four hundred years downward, said real rates, right? So yeah. any divergence in the trend. You know, the prior divergences were always higher than the next divergence. So I'm not saying that we're going back to Paul Volcker type levels of inflation or rates. Right, right, right. Even a doubling from current levels of inflation, okay, to four or five would be a dramatic change, right? Yeah. Dramatic change. And as I said, given the duration of, of bond portfolios, given the absolute level of yields, given how quickly convexity can destroy the value of those bond yields, given where they are, or those bond holdings, given where they are, you can still get massive wealth destruction within that period. And it's all about, I know central bankers like to think about it in real terms, but it is that is important, right? I mean, if you, let's say over the next five, six years, we just we do what we did from 65 to 70. If you've destroyed the value of real treasury holdings by a third, then the nominal value of that debt to GDP, you know, fine, it might be high, but but GDP will have grown a lot. So, mm -hmm. you know, inflation is just the great leveler. Right? The problem that we've had is we haven't been able to create inflation. What we've done is we've inflated asset prices, hoping that somehow using a sort of free market metric, you know, and sticking to that adherence that we would allow that to percolate into the system, right? Like some sort of Lord of the Manor dropping the few coins to his surf, right? <laughs> yeah. But, but the reality of the situation is it hasn't really worked that well. And so now all this discussion of MMT or, uh, you know, what Bernanke talked about the other day in, on his blog, you know, we could just put a quantity of QE cash in a government account and tell them to go and spend it as they want, yeah. right? That's very different. If you start to sp spend fiscal fiscal spending, and as I said, the Trump, the example of what happened with inflation during Trump's fiscal spending should be a real wake-up call for any, you know, deflationistas. Okay? And that's the Trump uh, tax cuts? Yeah, the tank, well, and yes, and a bloody great big budget blowout too. Right. Right. Um, it, that should be a real wake up call for any of these sort of perma deflationistas, because given where the dollar was, yeah. the fact that we managed to generate the inflation that we did 
should really scare the hell out of you because you fast forward for you know two or three years and you get mmt induced you know infrastructure spending or something plus a weak dollar boy oh boy watch out yeah, and I saw we actually recently ticked up to was it over two percent on CPI, kind of the highest we've been in. Yeah, people don't many years. Well, it's it's a bit like the um, the uh, the unemployment rate. You know, the idea that we are stimulating at the levels that we are stimulating, you know, three and a half percent is pretty damn wild, right? I mean, it's pretty yeah. damn wild. And to your point, yes, I mean, you know, we're down from three, but we're stabilizing at one point, you know, just under two. And we're nowhere close to the zero that we were in 2015. Right. So let's go talk a little bit about going to what you said about demographics. I've heard you discuss this a little bit on on Real Vision, talking about this demographic shift with the baby boomers here in the US. There's a view out there that as the baby boomers retire, there's going to be this kind of shift. You, you can t- talk about fourth turning and these, these different kind of narratives that go along with that. But basically, long story short, is the baby boomers are going to start selling off both stocks and bonds and millennials may not be able to pick up the slack there. And then when you look at equity markets around the world, we've seen this play out in European equities, you know, peaked, never recovered. We've seen it in Japan, 89.90, peak, never recovered. Now, obviously, the economies are very different mm-hmm. on the demographic basis there. So a lot of people say, well, it's not really fair to draw some of those same conclusions. And then on the other side of the coin as well, when you look at millennials, there are a lot of um, certain labels. And like you said, it's maybe more really about the spending and the saving. And as millennials come of age, so to speak, they will be spending Correct. a lot and in, in earning more. So how are you looking at that dynamic? No, I, look, I think there are, you know, there are sort of micro trends and then there's some macro trends. I mean, I think, look, if I was, well, I was up until four years ago, I was long a bloody great big house in you know, New, New York commuter belt. Um, I was so desperate to sell that thing and get out. Um, because I think there are, you know, demographic shifts as, as those, uh, and taste shifts, right, which do dictate things as slightly changing. I mean, the, the millennials, you know, all right, they're still a bit young, they don't have the kids, but in general, they don't want McMansions and they don't want to be, um, you know, way out in the suburbs. Um, so I think those sorts of things will continue to uh, to change. But bigger picture, I think, you know, when I look at the, the shifting pattern here in terms of sort of um, consumption. I do think that, as I said, the first thing is to know it's all relative, right? So I think, you know, downward slope in all of these things, um, you know, but if you get a bounce of 100% from these levels, that's a lot. And then I think the second thing is it's, it's all about nominal, right? So if you can create, create quite a lot of inflation, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or at least rapid nominal GDP. That's what, I mean, that's been the objective all along. It's been nominal GDP. What's fallen short, though, is kind of at times we've had reasonably rapid real GDP, but we haven't had that much inflation. And what you need is you need to maintain that combination. Because if you can maintain that combination, there's enough 
growth in a way sloshing around the system, then what you can have is you can have the nominal value of housing staying the same, the nominal value maybe of the US equity market staying the same, but the real value kind of eroding. And the real value erodes from the baby boomers to the millennials. That's what you want, right? Because otherwise, to your point, the next five years are not good, right? I mean, if, you, mm-hmm. if you've read The Fourth Turning, if you've read, you know, if you believe in the Kondratiev wave, right? Mm-hmm. The next five years are what I would call the period is heads on sticks, mm-hmm. right? You know, this is pogroms. This is, you know, mass trials of, of errant, you know, capitalist speculators, right? This is hang the banker, right? This is all of that sort of stuff. I mean, you can see it whether you look at, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, God forbid, in the UK, or whether you look at Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders over here, lesser extent, but nonetheless, you can see some of those traits. And so, you know, we could go down that road, okay? If, if, you know, Raoul's right and the Fed fails and, 10-year yields go to 50 basis points. We could go down that route. Yeah. It, I do it, think policymakers like- got tools now which we didn't have and a willingness to use them. Yeah, what it seems like is the Fed and central banks around the world are trying to really, you know, mainly the Fed is just hold off long enough and, and throw everything I saw a Bloomberg article with literally a pic- a picture of the, of a kitchen sink where you know they're literally throwing everything at this thing to stave off long enough and and maybe just barely hold on until we get that reflationary environment and then this this shift to to MMT and fiscal spending. And in that case we've already seen the lows um, in yields, and, and there's, there's not going to be this need for a fl- flight to quality back into treasury. That's kind of my look. I mean, it's never, as I said, a straight linear path, right? I mean, I was a bit surprised yeah. we you got yields as low in the US again as we did, you know, this summer. But I think that was really because of Europe um, and what Mario Draghi did to the European bond market that caused that spillover. But we didn't get get back to the low, so I'm safe on that bet. Um, we didn't get back to low in 2016. Um, but I do agree with you. I think the singular objective of the Fed is to punt the cycle post the election because then it's up to the politicians because – you know, by that point, the Fed's got, I mean, the Fed's got another 150 basis points of easing that they could do. I mean, that could happen early next year if, if things don't go so well, um, you know, around trade and CEOs just become more uncertain around whether it's be the trade deal or the coming election. Um, so that could get wasted. But then, then, then they're done. They seem to have ruled out, thank goodness, negative interest rates. Um, and you're looking at fiscal. And that's what I, I tend to agree. I think the debate has wholly changed uh, around the world. And it's, it's, it's been, I don't think there's any choice, look, and also there's no politician, unless you're German, maybe, or Austrian, who doesn't like spending money. Um, and so I think it's only a question of at what point does that, do we cross that threshold? You can see it. I think you've got to be a little careful about assuming it's right here right now because it isn't um you know even in europe we should be doing it they're not really doing it yet um the us isn't going to do it until post the election 
But you can see, Ryan, to your point, I think you can see the pointers. And that's why I'm not in the, you know, you're all going to die. Yields are going back to 50 basis points kind of camp. I'm more in the, Mm -hmm. yeah, we might have a bit of pain before we get there. But broadly speaking, I think we're going to go into a fiscally driven economy. Um, However you fund that doesn't really matter. It could be good, but it could more likely than not, it's probably going to be quite politicized, not really free market, quite um, a little stagflationary, um, but it's far better than the alternative. And the, and the wealth is the way to extract the wealth, hopefully, is not the Bernie Sanders or the Jeremy Corbyn way where you tax people to death, is you just financially repress them in size. Right, and if you if you in five years, as I said, between sixty five and and seventy, only taking inflation up four points can destroy the value of a boomer's treasury holdings of by thirty percent in real terms. You can do a pretty damn good job by twenty thirty. Right, and we t- we talked a lot about rates. You mentioned housing prices our, our real estate sector and you're looking at that piece because i think that's that's also a major part of kind of the wealth effect and and causing people to feel wealthier and maybe go out to spend when you look at the the housing market here in the u.s it's been buoyed by rates being low but also this supply and demand imbalance where there's just not a lot of inventory uh, but when you kind of look, and of course, it's a very localized yep. uh, type of asset class. But um, so when you look at it kind of on that macro level, you can look at it doing well with as kind of a real asset um, when you look at gold or other real assets. And then when you lump in equities in that bucket, probably benefiting from increasing earnings, at least companies that have that pricing power, and then throwing kind of everything in that bucket. And then you have fixed income maybe on the other side, but how are you looking at, at real estate prices, people being able to afford more mortgage with rates so low, but then on the other side of the coin, you have this financialization piece where the Fed has inflated all real right. uh, risk assets. Real so I, think, look, I mean, one of the things that we pointed out, um, Beautiful last was when the housing market starts to peak. We just we wrote this piece and said, you know, housing, it's two steps forward, one step back. And we'd said, you know, you get this back up in bond yields in 2016 into 2017. And we said, hold on, housing's going to take it in the teeth. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because the underlying asset price, to your point, has become just so nosebleedingly expensive, right? Yeah. You know, in the same way that um, you've inflated equity prices, you've inflated house prices, you've inflated car prices, you've kind of done it all across the board. But in the tangible real economy, there is, as I said, the affordability uh, issue. And we push prices in in nominal terms i mean through or two or through their pre-gfc highs um and i so i think this game of you know when you look at the equity market where i think one can argue that internally within the u.s equity market not in broad terms necessarily but with internally within the u.s equity market let's say between growth and value you've created discrepancies which is as great as the dot-com bubble you know in the mm-hmm. in the real side of the economy you've created some excesses which are as great as they were heading into the gfc so i just don't see 
any way that you can keep increasing these at the same rate, which is one of the reasons why I think financial QE has kind of shot its bolt. I just don't see that there's that much more room to do this. Um, I think that going forward, aside from all the local issues where we've got state and local tax deductibility just being nosebleeding problem for the coast, particularly those expensive areas, um, what you're going to find out is in the, is uh, nominal terms, house prices may slightly increase, but I think in real terms, they'll probably fall a little bit or be stagnant. What you're going to want to try and do is for the millennials to start earning the money as wages continue to grow, to start earning their way into those houses. And it's not that I think they're necessarily a bad investment, but I think in a way, you've got to look at it slightly about face. I wonder actually whether the really the best investment of owning a house is not the house, but the mortgage that goes with it, particularly here in the US, when you mm-hmm. lock in fixed rate mortgages. Yeah. Um, so I just, you know, to me, if we get into a more inflationary environment, that's, you know, housing. I mean, in, initially, if you look in the, as inflation starts to pick up, housing doesn't do brilliantly. It does well later on. As mm-hmm. wages really start to catch up, um, then it does it does really really quite well. Um, but for the next few years, I I just can't see that much more nominal house price appreciation. I just don't yeah, think it's but, possible. Right, but you don't see a huge a huge downside either. Look, I think the demand story. To your point, I mean, we just seen it. I mean, if you look at mortgage application for purchase, yeah, it's just exploded again. Right, this is one of the reasons why. You know, we are slightly more bullish on balance. And when I was more bullish than, say, Raoul was, you know, a couple of months ago uh, for the Macro Insider crowd. And I just sort of said, you know, it does look as though maybe those central banks have carried it off again. And mm-hmm. it, I'm not sure that the Fed, I don't put the benefit of the doubt really on the Fed for delivering the lower bond yields. As I said, I think that's more was the ECB um, that really caused that massive uh duration grab that we got during the summer. But the fact of the matter is, is by dropping bond yields from three to one and a half, you've really kicked off, you know, mortgage application for purchase. I mean, at the start of this year, and this is one of the problems, it was running negative year over year. Well, by the latest data, it's running at 16, 70% positive year over year. I mean, so it's it's really turned around, but but then that's rate of change and you have to look at level. And if you look at the level of housing activity, as you well know, it's a fraction of what it was at the highs of the GFC. And even pre, you know, 2004, 2005. And the reason is, Ryan, is because the underlying asset is so nosebleedingly expensive. Right, right. Well, Julian, this was great. Uh, Why don't you tell people where they can find your work and sign up for some of your premium products Thank you very much, Ryan. Look, anyone who wants to, uh, any sort of institutional clients who would like to reach out to us, they can contact us at uh, support at mi2partners.com. That's direct for our sort of institutional product. Um, If you're interested in your sort of an active uh, retail kind of investor or sort of a a less, you know, huge institutional account, um, then do reach out to, you could reach out to the same address and we'll put you in touch with uh, Real Vision for the Macro Insiders product. It's great. You get Raoul and I in a sort of nice, 
tidy little package. Um, and um, failing that, if you just want to follow my daily musings, um, then uh, you know, reach out to me on Twitter, which is uh, at JulianMI2. Great. Well, thanks so much, Julian. Really appreciate you coming on. Pleasure, Ryan. Thanks very much indeed. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at jellydonutpod. Or you can contact us via email at jellydonutpodcast at protonmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice. <laughs>